0: The Word of God we read together this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2. Isaiah, chapter 2. This is God's Word the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord." Therefore, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers, like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore, forgive them not. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust, for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures." And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, and the idols He shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks, and into the caves of the earth, for fear of the Lord, and for the glory of His majesty, when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks, for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? So far we read in the Word of God this morning. And in light of that reading from the Word of God, let's consider the instruction of Lord's Day 5 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Notice a new heading is above our Lord's Day, which says the second part of man's deliverance, which means we're getting into the second thing that we must know to enjoy our comfort, and to live and die, die happily, according to question and answer 2. But Lord's Day 5 asks this question, Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? Answer, God will have his justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed, and further... No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin, so as to deliver others from it. What sort of a mediator and deliverer, then, must we seek for? For one who is very man, and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Beloved congregation and our Lord Jesus Christ, are you ready? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? The Word of God says that day is coming. Verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. The day of the Lord will be a day when proud men are brought low. It will be a day when the idols that men have made with their hands are broken on the rocks. The day of the Lord will be a day of wrath. It will be a day of judgment. The Heidelberg Catechism has been making the case for us as to why this day must come. There is a standard of right and wrong. That standard is called the law of God. And there is a judge, a judge who is just and so holy that he is too pure of eye to behold evil. There is the original sin of man, of which we are all convicted in Adam. And there are the actual sins that we commit every day in violation of that law, which the just judge sees. And there is a punishment the only punishment that is equal to the crime of sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God, and that crime is everlasting punishment of body and soul. This is the truth of the human condition. This is the knowledge of our misery, which our Lord's Day summarizes for us in the first part of question 12. Since then... By the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. The catechism has been making that, that ca- the case that that is the truth. The day of the Lord is coming, in other words. Are you ready? Your readiness for the day of the Lord will depend on your answer to the question that is raised in Lord's Day 5. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. This is the question. Is there no way of escape? If you have discovered that you are trapped behind steel walls in a ship that is about to sink to the ocean floor, there is only one question that is going to be in your mind. Is there a way of escape? Is there a way to get past these walls and out back onto the top deck where there are lifeboats and safety? The purpose of Lord's Day 5, then, is to take us on a journey to answer this most serious of all questions, which we must face if we are going to be ready for the day of the Lord. There is a way. But there are also many dead ends, dead ends that will pull you down to the bottom of the ocean if you follow them. You must seek the way of escape that is God's own way. So let us seek for that way with the Word of God and the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide this morning. That's the theme for the sermon, the way of escape. First, we will see that this way is the way where man must cease as the answer to our problem. Secondly, this way is the way where God must be exalted as the only way of escape. And then finally, we'll make this practical by, by saying that this way is the way where faith, our faith, must seek The way of escape where man must cease, where God must be exalted, where faith must seek. What we need to appreciate at the outset this morning is that judgment is a reality that is faced by all human beings. We have seen that this is true biblically and theologically as we have worked through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Bible says that the whole human race is under guilt in their first father, Adam, there is a mighty stream of foul transgression that prevails from day to day in the depravity of man. And what that boils down to, according to Psalm 7, verse 11, is that God is angry. God is angry with the wicked every day. And that same Psalm, Psalm 7, in verse 12, describes God as a warrior with a bow in his hand and his arrow is knocked in the string And that arrow is pointing against the wicked, the rebellious man. That man is guilty and that judgment is coming is true, biblically and theologically, but what we must also understand is that this is simply true. In other words, this is not just a Christian idea. This isn't just something the Apostle Paul came up with, or something that Isaiah talked about a long time ago, or something that... The writers of the Heidelberg Catechism wrote about this is the truth, the truth of the human condition. And human beings know that this is the truth because they have a conscience, a conscience that tells them that there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is a standard of righteousness, and if there is a standard of righteousness, there is a judge who will hold them to that standard. They have eyes, and with those eyes they can behold the glory of God that is written in the heavens, and they know that there is a God and that He is to be worshipped. This is the truth, and all men know it. And There's a lot of fear that goes along with this. What's going to happen to me when I die? What's going to happen to the people around me? The cities and the buildings when the world comes to an end? Back in the summer of 2020, the reality of this fear that exists among human beings was brought home to my family when a FedEx driver stopped by to drop off a package. You know what was going on in the summer of 2020. This was right when everything was coming to a standstill. And not only was there all the talk of this virus, but there was all the uncertainty that came along with it. Uncertainty that was floating around in the air. I was not at home at the time that this FedEx driver came to our house, but my wife was outside sitting in the yard the kids were playing she was reading a book and the way it was set up in my former charge you have the church building and then you have the parsonage right there and everything was was right there well this fedex man saw the church building and he connected my wife and kids to that church building and he realized that we're a christian family and we're connected with that church it became evident that this man was dealing with some fear in light of all of the uncertainty and out of that fear he asked my wife a question he said is this it is this it is this the end of the world is that day coming is it has it arrived this man was not a believer He was not a Christian. But however he imagined that day to be, he had some sense that the day of the Lord is coming. And maybe it's coming now. There was a fear in him, a fear that moved him even to break social convention. You don't usually have conversation about such things with a FedEx driver. But he asked that question. Now the reason this is important is because it brings up the question that's raised by the Lord's Day. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and again be received into favor? What that illustration indicates and what the truth of the judgment indicates is that this is a question that all human beings are going to ask at some point. This isn't just a question that believers will ask. If judgment is not just an idea, but is a reality, and if human beings have at least a general awareness that there is a judgment and that that judgment has something to do with them, then in some form or fashion they're going to ask this question that is raised by the Lord's Day. Is there no way by which we may escape and by which it may be well with me rather than that that it may go poorly and then human beings who ask that question are going to find an answer they're going to find an answer to that question now that doesn't mean they're going to find the right answer but they're going to find an answer and they're going to lean into that answer to solve and answer their fears What we're talking about here and dealing with here is the seed of all false religion and false philosophy. This general awareness that there is judgment, this general sense that human beings have of guilt, this fear and the shame that is associated with the judgment that is coming and the longing that people have to be happy and to be free... They're going to ask the question, Is there no way by which we may escape? And they're going to find an answer to that question. And the sad reality is is that too often they find their answer not by looking to God, but by looking to man. Just look at what was going on in Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah. What was characteristic of the city that Isaiah describes here in Isaiah chapter 2? Well, it was a city that was full of idols. Idols of silver and idols of gold. Idols in the high places and idols in the low places. Family idols, public idols, personal idols. Verse 8. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their, hand, their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. And that last phrase in verse 8 makes clear what's really going on here. The people who make the idol say that the idol is a god. That's why they make it out of silver and out of gold and cover it with all kinds of fancy jewels. They're saying this is something divine, something that ought to be worshipped. But what is, the, what is the reality of the situation? The reality of the situation is that this idol is an object that was made by the fingers of human beings. Their own fingers have made them. And this now is what they are turning to. They are turning to the idol as their way of escape from the judgment that is coming. They are saying, if I sacrifice to this idol that my fingers have made, then this idol will protect me from the evil that is coming. If I worship this idol, which is the work of my hands, then the idol will do good to me and restore me to favor. So you see, when it comes down to it, idolatry is not just about men having other gods than God to worship and to serve, what idolatry really comes down to is man having himself as his own God. Man will be my way of escape. Man will be my ticket back to happiness and favor. This is why Isaiah wraps up this whole prophecy not by speaking of idols anymore, but by speaking of man in verse 22. This is what he says. This is the warning that he gives. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? So what the Lord's Day wants to make clear is that there can be no escape found in man. That's the question we're asking here. Is there no way of escape? What path can I use in order to escape from the judgment that is coming? And the first thing that we have to face is the dead ends. And the dead end that the Heidelberg Catechism wants us to face is man. Man will not enable you to escape the judgment. The reason for that, first of all, is because man is weak. Isaiah says his breath is in his nostrils. And his point in saying that his breath is in his nostrils is that the whole life and existence of man depends on that air that is always going in and out of his nose. As soon as man stops breathing through his nostrils what happens? Well he dies. And he returns to the grave. Human beings are transient. Which means they're fleeting. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Or as James put it, they're like a vapor or a wisp of smoke that floats around in the air for a while before vanishing away. Man man is weak compared to God who made the heavens and who made all creatures, man is like nothing. And yet the judgment that man faces, according to question and answer 14, is the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin. This is the situation, according to the catechism and according to the Word of God. God has his bow and his arrow drawn back and that arrow of everlasting judgment and damnation in hell is pointing directly at man. Pressing down on man from all sides is the weight of God's holy anger and righteous indignation in the judgment. Can man sustain a burden like that? Can man hold up under such pressure? Can man take that arrow and not be utterly obliterated by it? The answer is no. He cannot sustain it for a moment. He's too weak. Just to make that a little bit graphic, if you put all of the weight of your body on a little beetle that's crawling around on the ground, are you even going to feel it? when that beetle is crushed to smithereens? Well, that's like man under the burden of God's wrath. He can't hold up under it. He can't sustain it. He's weak, transient, vanishing and fleeting. We need to remember this when we get all excited about certain men whom we think are great men. We sure can get excited about certain men who hold political office, perhaps. We post their names on signs in our yards. Maybe we attend rallies and events and we hoot and we holler. This man is going to solve all of our problems. This man is going to make the world that I live in a better place. We can get excited about the names of certain men in the church as well. Sure, I'll go to church faithfully on Sunday and I'll listen to the sermon that is preached from the pulpit in the local congregation. But I'm really getting my spiritual food from this man over here whom I love to listen to on sermon audio. I'm unsure if I agree when so-and-so addresses a controversial matter, even if he backs everything up with Scripture. But when this man over here speaks well, then I know what I think, and then I know how I believe. It's easier than we imagine to trust in men. But when we are tempted to trust in men, we need to remember something very, very significant, which is that this man over here, regardless of how tall he is, or how handsome he is, or how eloquent he is, or how well-respected he is, or how gifted he is, Would be crushed like a bug if he tried to bear up under the weight of the everlasting judgment of God. He is weak. He is a vapor who will pass away just like the air that is constantly going in and out of your nostrils. It doesn't mean don't listen to what he has to say. Yes. There are men who have gifts, and we praise God for that. Listen to them. Listen to what they have to say. When it's political season, cast your vote and do so with discernment, but cease from man as a way of escape from the everlasting judgment of God. You will be disappointed. The other reason we must cease from man as a way of escape is not only because man is weak, but also because man is guilty. That's what's so ironic about man turning to idols in order to escape the judgment. The very thing that he thinks is going to save him is exactly the reason why God is aiming his arrow of judgment at him. Verse 18 says that God shall utterly abolish the idols in the day of the Lord. This is why God is angry with man. Because he makes idols. Because he trusts in himself. And then man turns to that idol and thinks, this will be my way of escape. This will be my way of deliverance. This will be the proof of my righteousness. Not so. Question 13 asks, if we can ourselves make the satisfaction of God's judgment that is necessary in order for us to escape. The question there in question 13 is not whether we are strong enough to bear the weight of God's wrath. The question is whether we are righteous enough even to attempt bearing up under that weight. And the answer is a resounding no. So far are we from being in a position to be righteous enough to escape judgment or even to attempt such a thing, everything that we do only brings more judgment. And that's the answer. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. So imagine if you lent your lawnmower to your neighbor, and then your neighbor goes and breaks it. But then imagine he knocks on your door with a broken lawnmower, and he asks if if he can borrow some money from you, So that he can go to the Lowe's and buy you a new lawnmower. (laughs) What would you say? Well, that's what the catechism is telling us in answer thirteen. How can we ever pay back God when doing so would require that we take out another massive loan? It's impossible. Man has a way of escape. From the judgment of God is a dead end. And so Isaiah warns, the word of God warns, cease from man. Cease from man as your way of escape on the day of judgment. Cease from the idols that are the work of his fingers. You need to find a different way of escape. So where? Where must we turn if we will escape God's judgment and again be received to favor? Well, in order to make the point we have here in the second point, I want us to imagine for a moment that the day of the Lord that Isaiah is speaking of here is upon us. Let's think in those terms for a moment. The day of the Lord is upon us. The Lord has come down in all of his holy majesty. His arrow is notched, his bow is bent back, he is letting his arrows fly left and right. He has arisen to shake the earth terribly, as Isaiah says in verse 21. The day of the Lord has arrived. Now, where are all the idols that men trusted in to save them on this day when it arrives? What are men doing with those idols? What happens to those idols? Well, according to verse 20, the men take those idols and they cast them away. In that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks, for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In other words, they're taking these idols that they worshiped and trusted in, and they're chucking them in the garbage pile. That idol is shown to be precisely worthless when it comes to defending me from the arrows of God's judgment and wrath that are now being fired against me on the day of the Lord. That politician's policies have been exposed as absolutely nothing, of no significance, with regard to this burden that I now face on the day of the Lord. What this man said or what that man did is like so much white noise when the day of the Lord has finally arrived. And what are all the men who trusted in these things to save them doing now that the day of the Lord has come? Well, what they are doing is they are running away. They throw their idols into the garbage pile, and then they run into into the clefts of the rocks themselves and, and into the tops of the ragged rocks. They say, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, they say to the mountains, fall on us and to the rocks, hide us from the fierceness of his wrath. They're terrified, terrified of the God of judgment who now is exposing the fierceness of his anger to them, and they have nothing to hide behind. Because even if the mountains fall on them to hide them, God will know where they are hidden, since God himself is the one who is shaking the earth and causing those mountains to fall and to crumble. His eyes are in every place, beholding the evil. And the, and the good, and he will summon all men, even the bodies out of the depths of the sea, to appear before him on the day of the Lord. On that day, God will be exalted, even if men refused to trust in him. But now the question is this. If the response of men on the day of the Lord is to run away from God, And if all who run away from God on the day of judgment are caught by Him and judged and struck down by His arrows, where can you run to if you want to escape that judgment and find life and comfort? Where do you go if the eyes of the Lord are truly in every place, beholding the evil and the good, and the earth itself is crumbling beneath your feet? Where do you go? To where do you run? Well, I think we know the answer, but it ought to surprise us a bit and make us stop and consider. Because where you must run is exactly to the God who is bending back his bow and firing off all of those arrows. You must run to him. You must run to this divine being who in his wrath and power and omnipotence Is shaking the earth terribly. You must run to this God who is making the mountains to crumble, and the stars to fall from heaven, and the moon to turn to blood. You must run to Him. He only is your way of escape, He alone. Isaiah teaches this earlier in the chapter, in verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us run to this God, whose justice we have violated, and whose judgment to which we are exposed by nature. Run to the lawgiver. Run to the maker of heaven and earth and the judge of all men. Run to this warrior whose arrow is notched and whose bow is bent back in in the fierceness of his anger. God. God himself is the way of escape from the judgment of God. And only God is that way of escape. Why this is the case Is what the Lord's Day is attempting to explain to us. On the one hand, the baseline principle that we are working with and which we must work with is that God will have his justice satisfied. It's kind of a jarring answer to question 12, isn't it? Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way of escape? Which we may, no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? The answer is not yes or no. The answer is God will have his justice satisfied. It's a bit jarring. But we've already seen that this is true in Lord's Day 4 and why it's true. If God does not have his justice, justice satisfied, then he's not God anymore. Because the God of the Bible is just. Just. If God does not have his justice satisfied, then evil wins. Sin wins. Corruption wins. Righteousness loses. Good loses. God will have his justice satisfied. And we want God's justice to be satisfied because we want God to be God. But when you read that answer, it's like running straight into a steel door that is sealed shut when you're trying to escape from that sinking ship in the middle of the ocean. There is no way of escape that does not deal with the reality of God's justice. There is no way of escape that does not deal with the reality of who and what God is. If you try to run away from Him, what you are demonstrating is, I don't want that God. I don't want that God of justice. I don't want His laws. I don't want His idea of what's right and wrong. I want something else. And That's the road that Leads men to make idols and to serve and to worship and to trust in the work of their fingers. And it's a dead end. God will have his justice satisfied. In the day of judgment and wrath, God will be exalted in everything that he is. And so, there is no way to go around that steel door. You must go through it. But who's going to open that door for you? Man, whose breath is in his nostrils, is too weak. To open that door. If he tries, he'll be crushed by it. So, is there anyone who can? Is there anyone strong enough to sustain the everlasting wrath of God to absorb those arrows? The answer is yes. There is one. And that one is God Himself. God can do it, His wrath is eternal. His justice is everlasting, but he is also omnipotent. He can make a way through. He can make a way through the door. He's strong enough. But what about the matter of righteousness? We've said before that man cannot be a way of escape for two reasons. One, he's too weak, he's not strong enough to sustain the burden of judgment, but also, he's not righteous. So how would it be righteous for God to make a way for us through that door? Or to put the question this way, how is it fair for God to satisfy the penalty for the sins that we committed? That in the end is the big problem that we face, isn't it? We committed sins against God and God is a righteous judge. How would it be fair then for God to take those sins away and to deal with them? God did not commit those sins. And there is no other creature that committed those sins. Goats and bulls did not commit those sins. It was human beings who committed those sins. It was Adam who took his hand and used it to violate God's righteous commandment by eating that fruit that was forbidden. It is our hands and our tongues and our bodies and our souls That have committed these sins? How is it just for God to punish something else, a different creature, or or his own divine nature for sins that human nature committed? It was man who sinned. It must be man who satisfies for that sin. But this is what prepares us for the great wonder that God has done in order to make a way for us to escape. Because this is what the Incarnation is all about, beloved. The Incarnation of the Son of God into human flesh. Take note. The Incarnation is something that only God could ever do. There is no politician or scientist or doctor or great man who could ever take the infinite, glorious God and bring Him down into human flesh walk among us and to dwell among us and yet retain everything that he is as the holy and divine God. Man cannot do that. Man can pretend. Man can lift up all kinds of men who he says are God-like or who are heroes or saviors that you should follow. Man can pretend. But man can't do it. God, however, can. What is impossible to man, God can do. And God has done this very thing. He has assumed a real human nature. And in that real human nature, he has with divine power sustained the burden of his wrath against sins that you and I committed in our first father, Adam, and with our own hands. That's the wonder work of God. man whose breath is in his nostrils could never even conceive of a thing like this, much less pull it off. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, not only was able to do this, but was willing to do it, wanted to, and did actually do it in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The escape God has provided in Christ, then, is where your faith must seek This is the language of the Lord's Day, by the way. The Lord's Day is coming at us with the idea that we are seekers. We are looking for an answer to that question. Is there no way by which we may escape this wrath, this judgment, and again be received into favor? We are seekers. And when the answer is given as to who that deliverer is, the idea is that we must seek him. That's why Question 15 asks the question this way What sort of a mediator and a deliverer then must we seek for? And then when it reveals that mediator and deliverer, the idea is, You must seek this mediator and deliverer. And that word must is there, and it must be there because this question really has to do with the call of the gospel. So far in the sermon this morning, in point one and point two, we have been dealing with declarative sentences. And the Reformed faith does that, and the Bible does that. It makes declarations, it makes statements about what is true, it tells us what God has done. But the Reformed faith and the Bible do not tell us everything that God has done. For example, in satisfying his justice in the incarnation and making a way of escape, the Bible does not tell us all of those things and then just leave us sitting there blinking. No. There's a call, a call to response. Verse 3 Come, come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. Verse 5 O house of Jacob, come, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And also verse 22, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of. That's not just a statement, that's that's a calling. This is what the Catechism is also doing by the way it's structured and written. What the Catechism is doing is building us up and leading us into the doctrines of sovereign grace But it is doing so, as it is also laying this question on our consciences and calling us to respond in some way. What sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? And the implied question within that question is this. Are you seeking Him? There is a way of escape in the Lord Jesus Christ. and God has called you to seek this way. Are you? Are you seeking Him? Now, as Reformed believers, we understand it's not our seeking that saves us. If you are seeking the Lord, that already shows you have been saved by the power of His grace. Totally depraved, dead humans do not seek the Lord. Those seek the Lord who have already been sought out by the Lord touched by the power of His Spirit, regenerated and renewed. And that ought to be a comfort to us this morning. We're not supposed to sit here wondering whether or not I'm really seeking the Lord and then being terrified if I'm not seeking Him enough or not seeking Him in the right way. That can be a cause of trouble to our spirit and a source of doubt and fear. No, you can rest in the fact that God has you in His hand and he's going to keep you secure in the day of wrath if, if you are seeking him at all. Well, then God has put that in your heart. But we do need to have this question and the call of the gospel pressed upon our hearts this morning. Beloved, there is a way of escape. There is a deliverer who is able to satisfy God's justice for you and to restore you again to favor Now are you going to turn away from Him? Are you going to turn away from that way and trust instead in a politician? Or trust instead in a gifted preacher or a doctor or a father or some other man to save you? Are you going to turn away from Him and put your trust in the works of your own hands? In your good works? The things that you do that you imagine cancel out the bad things that you have done. No, beloved, you need to hear it. And you need to respond to the call of the gospel, the call of the gospel which says, Cease from man. Seek your escape not in man, for wherein is he to be accounted of? He's like dust blowing in the wind, he can't help you. There is only death and destruction if man is your way of escape. Seek your escape not in man, seek your escape. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Rely upon Him day after day. And on the day of the Lord itself, approach that day, not in fear, not in doubt, but in the confidence that the very Lord who comes, who will be bending back his arrows and firing his bow against the wicked, is the very person who in real human flesh came down and sustained in his real human nature with the power of his divine being God's wrath against our sin so as to make that way of escape for us. Seek him, rely upon him, trust in him, live every day, beloved, holding on to him by the faith that God gives you and works in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Seeking him and only seeking him, Will you be able to stand this day without fear, looking ahead to that day, the day of the Lord, with confidence? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee that Thou hast opened up for us a way of escape and that Thou hast done such wonders, wonders that man could never conceive of, much less do. Thou hast come thyself in the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived among us and walked among us, and in his real human nature bore up for us thy eternal wrath against our sin. Thou hast opened that way, thou hast accomplished redemption. We thank thee too, O oh Father, for the gift of faith which thou hast worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, enlivening us and making us conscious of the presence of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Father, that Thou wilt strengthen our faith and awaken our faith so that by that faith we seek Thee and we seek Jesus Christ and rather than run away from Thee, which is the impulse of our sinful human nature, we would run toward Thee and we would lay hold upon Thee as the Father of all mercies in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Father, that as we seek that we will also find, and as we knock, that it will also be opened unto us, that we will find rest for our souls through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us not, O Father, be afraid of that call, that call that lays it upon us each as individuals as we stand before thee, our God, but rather give us the ears to hear that call and to respond to that call and to seek the Lord. Bless us, O Father, with the blessing of thy house, and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.